right, good evening. Uh, it's good to see everyone tonight. I want to welcome you to our first night of Discipleship Month. It is the first time that we've done this, and we've been making plans for this for several, several months uh, to get ready for this. So we are really excited about it. You're here for the first week of the first time uh, that we have done this. Uh, our goal for Discipleship Month is to help you grow in confidence. Uh, it is one of the things that we just know that just when you begin your walk, when you begin your faith, uh, that doesn't mean that everything falls into place. And sometimes it almost seems as though the longer that we are in our faith, sometimes we can almost feel ourselves stepping back because we begin to get a list of things that we don't know. Well, I don't know about that, and I don't understand about that, and we hear someone else talk about it, or we hear them ask a question about it, and we're like, oh boy, I don't know that. And so we almost lose confidence as we go on. And so one of the things that we really want to be doing is that we want to help you grow in your confidence in your faith. We're not going to know everything, but you are not intended, God never intended for us to walk around scared in our faith in any way possible. And so what we're talking about in our sessions uh, for the next four weeks is we are talking about four doctrines uh, that every believer needs to understand. And so we haven't talked about what those four doctrines are, but let me give you a quick preview of where we're going to go uh, in this month. Yeah, you have your handout, so some of you already know because you read ahead. Um, but our beginning with creation, where do we come from? Uh, that question, that answer lays so much of a foundation for everything else that we understand about life in terms of where do we come from. So one of the things that you need to understand is creation. Uh, another piece that you need to understand to live out your faith is the question of biblical authority. How do we know? Who says? How do we know that we have confidence in the Bible that we've been given? What's the difference between our Bible and other people's Bibles? And, and, and why do we have confidence over other people? That's a question that you need to know because really just about everything else that we're going to talk about, everything else we're going to study is going to come from a degree of biblical authority. The next question that we're going to deal with together and we're not doing all of these tonight. These are week by week. Uh, but what we'll deal with is the deity of Christ. This is a central doctrine. Uh, but it's also one of the places where some folks get it confused and it can really cause some difficulties. One of the reasons why it's that people get it confused is because it's a little bit difficult. Uh, because it says that Jesus was completely God and completely man. And sometimes when we try to hold on to two things at one time, we end up kind of leaning into one of them. And so our picture of Jesus is that he is really, really God, but maybe he was just, he wasn't quite as human as you and I were human. The other side of that is, no, I know that he was human, but maybe he wasn't quite as much God as God is God. And so we try to understand how Jesus is both man and God. And then if we have a hard time trying to hold on to two truths, uh, imagine what happens when we try to hold on to three truths. Uh, and that is how the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are all one and the same, and yet three distinct persons. And so we're going to spend some time there, and I will completely explain it to you, and you'll never have a question about, the, okay, that's not true. <laughs> but we will probably try to lop off some sections and say, okay, it's not this, it's not this, it's not this, and it's someplace inside of this circle or triangle, uh, so to speak. So these are the four things that we're going to be talking about. And if we get these things right, it really lays the foundation for the rest of our faith. And so uh, let's continue to take a look at that. Every week, we're going to have a basic outline for what we're going to talk about. Uh, the first thing that we're going to talk about is what does Scripture teach? What is it that the Bible tells us about this topic? Whether it's creation, whether it's biblical authority, whether it's the deity of Christ or the Trinity. Obviously, we're going to start with Scripture. But we're also going to try to spend a few minutes talking about why does this matter? Why did we choose these four doctrines and say every believer has to understand this? 
What does it matter what we believe about the personhood and the deity of, of Jesus? What does it matter if we don't understand what the Trinity says? What does it matter about creation? So we're going to try to understand what does Scripture teach and why does this matter inside of our lives? And then we're going to ask the question, what happens when other people get it wrong? If we say, hey, this is a really big deal, this is really important, and, and, and this is central to our faith, well, what if you get it wrong? And the truth is that every one of these doctrines, there are people who get it wrong, and sometimes that's where other world religions, sometimes that's where other cults come from, is that they are getting one of these four doctrines wrong. So we're going to talk about that a, a little bit. Another name that I thought about giving the seminar uh, was cult proofing your faith. In other words, if you'll keep these four things in place, it is most likely that you will stay inside of the true Christian faith if you keep these things in place. So what happens when other people get it wrong? But also, what happens when we get it wrong? So maybe not necessarily a doctrinal system from another church or cult, but what happens in our lives when, as disciples of Jesus, we don't get this right? So we're going to try to unpack those uh, each week. Does that sound all right? All right, good, because that's kind of what I prepared. And if, if you wanted something else, we're going to be kind of stuck. Um, but here we go. Uh, all right, so our first week, you remember, the first topic we're dealing with was... Creation, good. It's not a hard question. It's right there. Just wanted to make sure everybody was still uh, with us. So, uh, when it comes to creation, there is a chicken or egg question. Now, that's not necessarily which came first, the chicken or the egg, but the question is, how do we know what we know about God? And what I mean by this is, what is the answer to the question of who says? Who has that authority to say, this is the way that it is? Um, there's really two ways that we answer that. One is the Bible. And as you can see on our list of topics, next week we're going to be talking about what the Bible says. But the other option is that we can look at the world around us and discover things about God. And in fact, both of those things are true. In fact, sometimes people will describe this as direct revelation, what God puts in specific words and specific ideas to a specific people, and says, this is what you need to know. And it is literally in black and white, sometimes red, there in your Bible, there's the answers. And then the second thing is, we look around and nature reveals truth about God. So which comes first? If we try to understand about God from, about creation, which comes first? The truth is that most theologians, because of their work and the way that they handle things, most theologians are going to answer the question of creation and just about everything else, trying to understand God, starting with the Bible. You're going to hear from me. The Bible is central to everything that we do. But I'm also going to say that in this case, with creation, I think that we can start with the world around us. And then we come to the Word of God. In fact, if you have your Bible with you um, this evening, I like what Psalm 19 has to say for us. Psalm 19 If you take a look at Psalm 19, it says, The heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims His handiwork. Day to day pours out speech. Night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words, whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the ends of the world. In them He set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving His chamber. And like a strong man runs its course with joy. It is rising from the end of the heavens and its circuit to the end of them. There is nothing hidden from its heat. How do we know about God? 
The sun comes up every day, stays in a pattern. In fact, you can set your clock by it. You can set your calendar by it. You, you can set thousands of years measuring smarter people than me, measuring by the consistency of what the sun, moon, and stars do. Those didn't just happen. The rest of Psalm 19 says, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The command of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. And as you take a look at that psalm, what you're seeing is it starts with the indirect revelation and then moves to the direct revelation. And I just want us to just kind of think about the fact that there's an awful lot that we learn about God that even if we had never been introduced to the Word of God, that we would see and know because of the order of the world around us. We'll talk about that in a, in a little bit uh, in more detail. But I want to think about creation and the question of does it matter. Um, one of the things to start with is the Apostles' Creed. Now, we don't necessarily in our church speak out the Apostles' Creed on a regular basis, but the Apostles' Creed is a statement of faith that goes to the second century, uh, just a little over a hundred years uh, after the end of the New Testament church. And the first statement that we find in the Apostles' Creed, the starting point for our faith is, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, Creator of the heaven and earth. Creation matters because it's the building block of our faith. Creation matters because it's presumed in the New Testament church. Uh, we have several passages that are on that handout. Um, anybody mind reading a couple of these? Let's just kind of read. John chapter 1. He being any was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was nothing. There was not anything made that was made. Okay. I'm probably going to read some more of these just so that the camera picks up the voice, because it may not pick you guys up. Um, but right there in John chapter 1, uh, what does it say is central? How did the world get made? God made it. In Acts chapter 14 and verse 15, it's right there in front of you. It says, men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you. We bring you good news that you should turn from these main things to a living God who made the heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them. A little bit later, Paul is there in Athens and he talks about the God who made the world and everything in it being the Lord of heaven and earth he does not live in temples made by man. The God who made heaven and earth. Colossians chapter 1 verses 15 to 17 says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Him and for Him, and He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. Quick question. What is the percentage of things that God created in this world? All of them. All of them. 100%. Not some of them. He didn't get the ball rolling. All things that exist are because God created them. In Revelation chapter 4, and verse 11, it says, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. Creation matters because it's foundational to the teaching of the church, church, to the teaching of the Bible, to the teaching of the gospel. It is presumed throughout the text. Now, you also have in front of you the great passage about creation. Uh, here's those verses. Uh, the great passage about creation, Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2. Um, as we take a look at that, we won't read all of it, but we may glance at it as we go. But it says in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1, In the beginning 
God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was void and formless. The darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of the Lord was hovering over the face of the waters. God said, let there be light. And there was light. God said the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day. And the darkness He called night. And there was evening. And there was morning the first day. And we see as the passage continues throughout uh, the first chapter and into chapter 2 that we see the whole of Scripture or the whole of creation being poured out there. When you think about Genesis chapter 1 and 2, the creation story, what are some things that you think about when you think about those passages? When you think of those creation chapters, what do you what do you think of? God creating. There you go, God creating the world. It's 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 right there in a nutshell. Okay. Did anybody ever think as a child, well, where did God come from when you first read this? For sure. Uh, you know, as you begin to think about it, where does that back up? Okay, all God started all of this, but where did God come from? Yeah. Yeah, that's the that's the kind of question that we ask. All right, what else? About how God created even the simpler things that we don't really necessarily give respect for, but then then He did that for me too. Yeah, yeah, the the, the tiniest details, the whole eco structure uh, of of this world. Yeah, and then we, we talk about how you know you've got to have this much carbon dioxide and you've got to have this much photosynthesis and all of these things. And I'm starting to talk beyond my pay grade, but uh, all of those things that create a perfect, minute balance in this world. What's that? Dinosaurs. <laughs> yep. Good question. But it all boils down to if you think about God's majesty. Yes. It's not our concept. Yeah. As as yeah, we're, we're going to talk a little bit about that beyondness that we see here in this passage. Uh, very, very significant, this beyondness. Well, here's a couple things that, um, that I just wanted to point out in terms of creation. Um, one of them is, well, we see in verse 1, in the beginning... God created the heavens and the earth, uh, just like Gene said, right there on the page, tells us that in the beginning, God was already there. Uh, he'd been there. Uh, when you get to the beginning, He's been waiting for you. Uh, and I think that that's a really important piece. We'll talk a little bit about some alternative views of the cosmos. But one of the things that as far back as you want to take things, if things started by chance, by a cataclysmic moment where there was an explosion in the cosmos, I want to know, and I'm not trying to be a smart aleck about it, but I'm, I want to know what it was that exploded. Because even the dust particles of the eons of time had to come from someplace. In our teaching, the Word of God tells us that in the beginning, God was already there and waiting. And that's a really, really big deal. We also see here the initiative of God. There's a phrase that we use sometimes describing creation, and it's called ex nihilo. Ex nihilo. And what that means is out of nothing. A little bit of what we were just talking about a moment ago. It just comes out of nothing. There are no particles. There are no ingredients. There are no. In fact, the, the next verse in verse in chapter one is that the earth was formless and without void. There was nothing there. But this initiative of God, this ex nihilo, also says that when God created, He created out of no existing ingredients, but He also created from an absence of need. God did not come to a place and say, boy, am I lonely. God did not come to a place and say, you know what's missing in my world? God is whole and complete, and yet He says, I decide 
This is the world that I want to create. It's his idea. He's not forced into it. He's not manipulated into it. It is not a mistake. He is not trying to catch up with, with this force doing this. It is his idea and says, this is what I want to do. We also see in Genesis 1 and 2, this relationship of God. We see the fact that He is extending beyond Himself. Like we said a moment ago, He is whole. He is complete. He is not lonely. But He chooses to create a garden and to put a person in that garden and then even for Him to walk in the cool of the evening with His very creation. The whole point of God's creation was to have relationship with us. Not for Him, but for us. And then, we also see inside of Genesis 1 and 2, we see the personal engagement of God. And this is a really big deal, and we'll unpack this a little bit in a few moments. But I want you to see the intimacy that we see in Genesis 1 and 2. It tells us that God breathed life into the nostrils of Adam. Uh, life came because God, in whatever way, it was the breath of God that became our breath. That's that's pretty intimate. Now, that's pretty close uh, experience. Um, it, it tells us that He formed Adam out of the dust of the earth. Again, God does not necessarily have lips. God does not necessarily have hands. But He gives us the image of breathing into us. He gives us the image that it was His hands that squeezed and formed and created us. And again, He gives us the image that He walks with Adam and Eve in the cool of the evening. That is a God who's engaged. So if we had nothing else in Scripture beyond Genesis chapter 1, this is what we would know about God. He is pre-existent. He is, we exist because of His initiative. He has relationship with us. Uh, there's a personal engaging uh, with us that matters. Now, let's talk a little bit about some of these false teachings uh, that we might talk about. Uh, and, and let's just unpack some of these. The first false teaching uh, that probably is the one that comes to mind the most for you is what I would call the doctrine or the teaching of chance. And that is, boom, it just happened. Now listen, I don't, I don't want to make fun and I don't want to be flippant with that because there are people that you know that would hold to this position and when we need to treat folks with respect and and I don't want to make a lot of jokes at this point I guess I've heard you know this place taught and it's always done almost mean-spirited and I, I don't I don't want to you know we're gonna make a monkey out of you I, I don't want to I don't want to go into that but there is this idea whether you go back to Darwinism from the late 1800s but even before Darwinism, there was a guy named Epicurus who lived between 300 B.C. and 200 B.C. Um, around that time, about 300 years before Jesus was born. And he taught that the world came into existence because random atoms collided with each other in time and exploded. That was something 300 years before Jesus was born. There has been a pull and a teaching that said, we just happened. Now, there's a major attraction that comes to the teaching of chance. And that is, it puts us at the top of the pile. We are the smart ones. We are the powerful ones. If our existence is because random things happen, then the rest of our lives can be determined by our randomness and by our chance. If there is a figure, if there is a person, if there is a deity that created, 
then this world belongs to him. And that person has authority over our lives. And so whether it be Darwinism, whether it be secular humanism today, whether it be Epicurus 300 years before Jesus, there is a pull to deny creation because we like the idea of saying, just happen, and therefore the rest of my life can just happen. In fact, Epicurus, his teaching, his concept was life is what you touch and experience and enjoy, and when you die, you cease to exist. You came into existence because of chance. When you die, you are snuffed out. So Epicurus said, so just squeeze everything out of life because that's all there is. That philosophy is a pretty popular philosophy today. We came from nowhere, we're going nowhere, just get the most out of life while you're here. That is a false teaching against creation. Creation tells us that there's an authority that we're accountable to. There's another doctrine, and I would call it the, the false doctrine of distance. Now this is interesting because when you read people who teach this doctrine, and we call it deism, or they would be called deists, they talk about God a great deal. In fact, they talk about God more than a lot of other people do. Uh, they're always talking about the God, the Creator God. The difference is they believe that this Creator God was this prime mover way at the beginning of time who has nothing to do with our lives since. And in fact, the, the imagery that is often used to describe them is that God is the clockmaker. He builds the clock, winds it up, puts it on the shelf, and just goes on with his day. In fact, sometimes when we look at some of the founding fathers of America and we read their words because they, they talked about God a lot, actually many of them were deists that actually believed that God did this, put God on a, put us on a shelf and moved on with their lives. And in fact, many ways, the deists lived their life like an Epicurean because they just kind of said, listen, God made us but he doesn't really care what happens next, so we should just squeeze the life out of it. Now, listen, one of the things that we have to know is that we can talk about God an awful lot. But we cannot forget that that God that we're talking about, that we tip our cap to and say, oh, God is powerful, that God is the same God that gave us the image of forming us with his hands and breathing life into us and walked in the garden with us because he desired relationship. God has never wound us up and put us on the shelf and forgotten about us. God is an intimate, engaging, direct God in this day. There's a another false teaching around creation, and this would be the doctrine of of balance. Uh, you could call this dualism. Uh, the image that I would give you of this is the image that you see sometimes and you're just kind of like, what is that funky sign? It's the yin and the yang. You know that thing that's it's in the circle and it's divided? And, you know, I think people use it in fashion sometimes and, and things like that. But what the yin and the yang says is that the world is balancing between two equal dual forces in this world. There is the force of light and there's the force of of darkness and it's our goal to find the balance in those things inside of our life it is our goal to find ourselves on the right side uh, of that balance but there is this equal balancing uh, dualism uh, received a huge yin and yang received a huge boost about 40 years ago with the release of the Star Wars movies the force we've got the light we've got the dark and, and there's this battle between the two, and we're trying to find the balance between the two. And what this says is that the forces of good and the forces of evil both exist in the world, true, but it says that they are equal and that they are balanced. What creation tells us is that they are not balanced. 
There is a God to put His fingers on the scale and He changed the entire thing. It is not a little bit of this, a little bit of that. No, it is the whole thing. The God is the one that spoke it into existence. And there is not a counterbalancing force on the other side equal to God. Even when Paul talks about the fact that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. He never for a moment said, and I wonder how that's going to turn out. There was no yin, there was no yang. It is God overpowering everything as the ultimate light that outshines the darkness every time. Those are kind of philosophical false teachings. Uh, one more false teaching that I wanted to mention, and this is the doctrine of distinction. I kind of made that phrase up, but, but I think that it works, and, and this is from Mormonism. And in the Church of Latter-day Saints, there is a concept that says there's very little distance between you and God. And in fact, one of the leaders of Mormonism said, as God now is, no, as man now is, God once was. Okay? So, God used to be a man until he got promoted and became God. And as God now is, man may be. And so every figure of Godness inside of the Mormon church used to be man, a created order. And every man or woman, if they will do the right things, can eventually establish their own deity. And so there's no real distinction between the created world and the Creator who made it. That's a, a false teaching uh, that's in place. Um, let's take a, a quick moment and just see if there's any questions or thoughts um, at this point. Well, that kind of answers the question about Mormonism and such. They're thinking that Jesus was a, just a, a good a teacher of apostle. Right. He is he is a person who is ascending. He is ascending because all of us uh, start out human. And if we play our cards right, so to speak, although they may not be allowed to play cards, uh, that, that if, if we do the right things, we will eventually reach deity. And in fact, that's the story of God. He eventually was just a pre-existent person who became God. And so therefore, when we come to the idea of the deity of Christ as being unique, yeah, that's going to fall apart. Because they don't have a distinction that by nature... There is God and there is us. Uh, for them, there's that's a very fuzzy line. Yeah, Gene. It doesn't that bring up to us you know, what we were reading a while ago? It indicates the plurality of God right there. So how do they equate that with what the Scripture tells us here? Well, you know, if we get away from Trinity, the plurality of God. He, that would be getting away from morality. Sure. Well, there, again, it's just this lack of distinction that the difference, one of the great things that we have to know in this world is that there's God and then there's everybody else. And and if we mingle those two ideas, then, then we're in trouble. And that's what, that's what Mormonism does, one of the things that it does. Alright, we'll, we'll ask some questions in a few minutes, but let me uh, try to tackle a couple more topics here. Um, one of the things that, in terms of how this impacts us in terms of our life, um, is that there are some implications of image bearing. It tells us in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 26, uh, your handout is missing that because it was supposed to go through chapter 2 verse 4 and it actually just stopped at verse 24. But in, in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, it says, Let us create man in our image. Now, 
That's an awful lot of questions that we can ask about what it means to be created in the image of God. Um, I think that there's a degree of the soul that's that's in play there. I can't fully tell you exactly what it is about you that looks like God. Uh, you may have some suggestions about yourself. I don't. I, I don't know. But what is it about you that looks like God? But what I can tell you is there is something about the way you are and the way that I am that says that I carry the marks, the images of God. Now this is a pretty big deal. And one of the things that you need to know is that you carry the image of God. So as you get up in the morning and you're having a tough day, you're having a struggle, and you're like, I don't know, you know if this is worth it, all those things, remind yourself you are made in the image of God. But I think the place where we struggle the most is that we have to remember that others are made in the image of God. Not just the people that we like, not just the attractive people, not just the people inside of our family, not just the people that we know, but every person who has ever drawn breath is made in the image of God and they must be treated as a person who carries the image of God. And so this means that people with special needs, while our culture kind of wants to shovel them off to the side, they matter because they are made in the image of God. This tells us that racism is an anathema because we are taking a look at the amount of melanin in somebody's skin and determining whether they have value or not. And the reality is they are made in the image of God. And there's a space for a great deal of repentance among us. Historically, that we would go to anybody and remove the dignity of the image of God based on anything. And man, we as a church, man, we've gotten that wrong. And I'm not just talking about Woodland Park Baptist Church, but but I gotta believe Woodland Park Baptist Church, however many years we celebrated 75 years, we've got the coffee cup to prove it. But there's a high likelihood in that 75 years we We've blown this. And the church down the street, the church across the road, and the church there, we've blown this. And it's done immense harm in the world. And so we need to get this right. This goes to people that we disagree with. This goes to people whose lifestyles we disagree with. This goes to people who may be living in sin. But they are still made in the image of God. And we have to treat all people with dignity. Watch the way Jesus treated people. Again, remember how much difficulty that he gets. Almost every story in the New Testament starts with some people were grumbling about who Jesus was hanging out with because they didn't think he should be hanging out with people like that. <coughs> Watch the way Jesus is the holiest person who ever lived. He is the definition of holy. And yet somehow he could treat every person with dignity whether that was someone who is different than him in terms of race or any other distinction or whether it be a person whose life was completely stained and broken by sin. Look at the way he treated every single person. It's probably because he recognized the image of God. And so that's a place that we have to get right. There's also a responsibility of being in the image of God. When I studied this for some work that I did in my doctoral work several years ago, I studied it in this passage, and this the language that's describing this image of God, it's almost as though there is this idea that we carry the logo or the branding of God on our lives. And the reason why that matters is that the emperor, the king, the, the, the ruler, he would go as far as he could control in his territory. And on the edges of his territory, he would put down a marker that had his image. And it was a sign to everyone that says, my authority goes this far. Now think about that in terms of you being an image bearer 
of God. Every step that you take in this world is an announcement to this world. The authority of God comes this far. Every place I go in my life, the authority of God follows me. And it is a reminder to this world that God owns this place. And He is in charge. So there's a responsibility uh, with being an image bearer. Alright. There's one more thing in terms of the discipleship distinctives. And this is a little bit complex. This is the untangling of the material and the divine. Now, we're going to use a word that you probably don't use very often, but if you read any commentaries of the New Testament, the word comes up all the time. It's the word called Gnosticism. It starts with a G and an N and a bunch of other words, letters after that. It's Gnosticism. And this was a false teaching in the early church that the church had to deal with. But, but here is the concept that is Gnosticism. Gnosticism teaches that everything that you can see and touch, the material world, is evil. And God is spirit, and He is perfect, and He is holy. So we have on one edge of existence the material, the stuff, the dirt, the flesh, the who we are. And on the other side, we have the divine. Now, what happens Christologically, what happens in terms of some doctrine issues, it says that Jesus can't become, that God never becomes man because that is a mixing together of the divine and the material and God would never do that. And so, a little bit like Mormonism, there is this idea that God has like a junior God and then another junior God and then another junior God and then another junior God. And so there's enough little junior gods and so that by the time the junior God touches this earth, there's not much of the divine that's left. Now, what this does is it says that this world is evil and that God doesn't touch this world. Now, I'll tell you that I think that we struggle with this teaching still to this day. Because we want to look around and we want to divide this world and say these are the good things, these are the evil things. Now listen, there are places that are marked by the Spirit and there are things that are marked with the rejection of the Spirit. No question about that. But one of the things that we have to understand is that this world is a mixture of both good and evil. There is evil that is present in this world. And the Spirit of God is present in this world. And we cannot divide out and say that there are two different worlds. In this world, there exists the things that are in rebellion against God. And in this world, there exists the presence, the movement, and the reality of God in this world. And so it is our task on a daily basis to live out our faith with the things that we touch and we feel. Now, some of the falseness of Gnosticism said that, listen, because God is so far away, the things that I touch, they're a mess anyways. So I can eat whatever I want. I can drink whatever I want. I can do whatever I want with my body. Because I'm so far away from God, all these junior gods, all this space. So it doesn't really matter. But the truth is, no, God is here. And with your food, and with your body, and with everything else you do with your time, we have the opportunity and the obligation to live that out in faith because God is present in this world. Does that make sense? Yeah. All right. Now, you ready for the fun questions? All right, here come the fun questions. They may be more fun for you than for me, or vice versa, I don't know. Here's the question. Oh, man. I don't even know why I'm bringing this up. Um, but I didn't see dinosaurs coming. I should have. Um, but here's the question. How long did creation actually take? Okay? I don't know. How's that? 
Scripture uses the language of six days for creation. And there's quite a bit of emphasis in there that says six days, morning and evening. And that is the language that God teaches us that. Now, there are times, okay, now you're going to have to just live with the fact that I'm saying this. There are times that I wonder if God didn't describe the creation of the world in the language that we would understand. Now, what I mean by this is when your four-year-old child or grandchild runs up to you and says, Meemaw, Peeball, where do babies come from? How do you answer that question? Well, in general, you don't lie to them. I hope you don't give them a story about some stork. But you kind of, you kind of give it language and explanation that is the clearest thing that a four-year-old can understand without you having to go into a set of details that your four-year-old is not ready to handle in terms of details. It is possible that how God created the world is more complicated than what my brain and your brain can handle. No offense to your brain, but I, it is possible that it's more complicated for us to understand. Now here, let me say this very, very clearly. When I say that as a possibility, I'm only saying it as a possibility, it is not because God needed more time. It is not that there are some people that say, you know, God just kind of started evolution and then evolution kind of took off. What I'm talking about is just the complexity of our brain that he used the simplest language for us to understand. In no way is that saying, well, God wasn't powerful enough to do that. No, <laughs> I, I believe that he did speak it into existence. I just don't necessarily know that the thing that we're supposed to take away from Genesis chapter 6 is a calendar. I think we're supposed to take away that pre-existent God. We're talking about that God who initiates. We're talking about that God of intimacy. That's what we're supposed to take away from Genesis chapter 6. That's what I want you to know. And six or one? Genesis chapter 1 about six days. Okay. Right. When you look at eternity, give me the concept of eternity compared to the concept of eternity. Yeah, yeah. I, I, there are some folks that have put the whole thing on. It's got to be six days. If you don't believe it's six days, you know, that's... Listen, I'm just telling you, God did it out of the abundance of His power and authority and awesomeness. And He is responsible for every ounce of our existence. Right. We believe that we will be with him in, in eternity. Right. So time is a little a little fuzzy as well. Uh, but that's just mine. So I, I guess what I'm trying to say is when I look at Genesis chapter 1, six days is about the least interesting thing that I find in Genesis chapter 6. In Genesis chapter 1. Um, I don't know. Um, if someone tells me that they believe that creation took longer than six days, but they believe that God did it in His authority, every ounce of it, I'm not going to lose sleep over that. Does that make sense? All right. uh, next one. How old is the earth today? I don't know. Um, I don't know. Years ago, a couple centuries ago, there was a guy named Bishop Usher. And he published the Usher's Bible. Not the guy that seats you, but the, the Bishop Usher. And what he did is he took all of the genealogies and he stacked the genealogies together. And he said, well, this amount of time, and this amount of time, and this amount of time. If you find a copy of Bishop Usher's Bible, he will tell you what year the world was created. He will tell you what day the world was created. And this is what amazed me. He'll tell you what time. 
I'm pretty sure it was sunrise. I, mean, I don't know, but I see the thing it was like 3.30 in the afternoon. It, but again, I don't know if that's central time. I don't know what, what that is. I don't know how old the earth is. To some degree, I don't think it matters. Now, when we, we struggle with this age question because those that have the doctrine of chance, they need to stack some age in there for the chances to increase. And so there's this gravitational pull from that side that says we got to go back and back because the numbers are incredible. So they got to make that longer and longer and longer. I, I think that that's unlikely. Um, I think that that's unlikely. I would also tell you, I don't believe every day or every hour of the earth's existence is documented in scripture. I believe that there's probably some gaps of time in there. Uh, I don't know the lengths of all of those times. Um, we don't know the length of time between Genesis chapter 2 and Genesis chapter 3 before Adam and Eve said. We, we, we don't know. That. There, there, there's several places where we don't know. And so again, I don't know how old the earth is. If you hold to a position that is billions of years old, if the reason that you hold that position is because that's got to give time for chance to happen, then, then I'm not buying that. Uh, but again, there's a degree in which I'm not... There, there are some people who tell you that we have to have an earth that's this age. I don't... I don't know. I don't know. I think that the earth is older than most of us. I don't know much, but my little mind, my new mind says that's the scientific. Got they got to have a rhyme and a reason for it. With God, a lot of things you just accept. I think God that's what that's what I'm trying to say. And and sometimes we try to categorize and say, listen, God is bigger than that. And and that's what I some of this stuff that I mean is the same thing as trying to explain to a young child where babies come from. It's just it's not gonna fit. Um, it's not going to fit. What you need to know is the who, not necessarily the how. That's what you need to know. Um, the last question is, what does this say about us? Um, I think we didn't really move into Genesis chapter 3, which is where the fall is, where sin enters into the world. Uh, but I would tell you that what this says about us is that you are made in the image of God and that you are fallen. And God sent His Son to rescue and save you. All of those things are true. Don't just lean into one of those. All of those things are true. You are made in the image of God. You are not dirt. You came from dirt. But you are not dirt. You are also not God, because you have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And both of those things are true. And the one that brings those two truths together is Jesus. But we don't get to him for two more weeks.